It's ten times the terror. Hello and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. I'm not okay. Hello, 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 and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. I'm James. And I'm Paul. And I'm Liz. And on today's episode, we have Elizabeth joining us for the very first time on Ten Times the Terror. Elizabeth, welcome. This should this should come as no uh no surprise. Eventually we'd get you on the podcast to talk about horror movies. You've been prepped for this your whole life, obviously being <laughs> a child of dad. Um, <laughs> but we're talking about one of your favorite movies, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here with you and dad. Um, of course, there's been many unrecorded conversations about films in the living room, but I'm so happy to be able to join you on the podcast. Um, I love the podcast, by the way. Uh, big fan. And, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to uh, to talk about Silence of the Lambs today. Um, do you guys want me to just like get started to sharing that or oh i just uh, by way of background just to point out that silence of the lambs is the the only horror film to, to win best picture in the oscars and it's only one of three films of any kind uh that won the the five major awards of um uh best film best director uh, uh best actor and and best actress yeah and uh, best adapted best screenplay. screenplay i think the last academy award book or any kind of a horror film was way back in 1932 when Frederick March won Best Actor for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I, I'm actually glad you brought that up, Dad, because I wanted to ask you about that. Like, you know, in some ways, horror films have often been sidelined as kind of, you know, lesser in, in terms of like artistry or considered not as highbrow as other films. And I don't know, I was just sort of wondering like what you would say about that. Yeah, it's not true, as simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an artistic uh, uh, prejudice, really. I mean, uh, and because the horror film, unlike any other genre, is a constant, you know, War pictures, westerns, musicals can come and go, ebb and flow, but the horror film has always been there uh, from the very beginning of, of cinema on up to the present. You know, now, yeah, it can have its own ebb and flow, but it's always there. I would like to point out that uh, Frankenstein is, between Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, as, to, as to what stories that were filmed in every decade of the 20th century. You can't say that about even Shakespeare, right? Or, yeah. or anything else. So, you know, yeah, no, it, it's, um, uh, and I think it's one of the things that, that we'll get into and talk about Silence of the Lambs is kind of prejudices about things that deal with fear. If we're afraid of something, uh, we, we become intolerant of it. That's what, a phobia means fear. You talk about homophobia or, or claustrophobia, and it, that's a phobia is Greek word for fear. So when our fears get touched upon, we become less rational and more reactive uh, and more prejudiced. So it, it's an important subject to deal with. You know, and it, it, as you bring that up, it's interesting because I also think it's a good, um, when we look at film as a kind of artifact of its time, it, it is often a really useful, uh, horror films are a useful format at which to see a culture's fears, right? It's it, it, it mm -hmm. you can definitely look back and see the kinds of things that 
you know, people were worried about, like when you look at the 50s and all those alien invasion, you know, um, movies, and that seems to be this like constant threat. And then the sort of the the monsters um, in the various decades kind of shift and change. And actually, that's one of the reasons that um, this is one of my favorite horror films. If, it, you know, uh, being here on this podcast and getting to sort of, um, you know, share with you something that we've shared my whole life is that, you know, um, it, you know, you've probably heard from Gwendolyn and James, but like, you know, having the sort of film education that we had where we watched like the golden age of horror films and the silver age of horror films. And I, that was like my main exposure to horror films until I was like 13. And then I was not really allowed to see Silence of the Lambs because it was rated R, but I did watch it on a VHS tape at my friend's house in her basement. Um, <laughs> and it was terrifying. Um, but, you know, you have a different kind of monster in this film, right? This is an example of man as the monster, right? You both have Hannibal mm -hmm. Lecter and Buffalo Bill, and these are like humans rather than it being like a vampire or, or you know, Frankenstein's monster or a werewolf. And that kind of shift, I mean, you, you also see that in obviously as early as like Psycho and I mean, I, I know you have a million other examples, but it seems like, you know, yeah. yeah, you have those in the 70s. You have all of those kinds of the beginning of these sort of serial killer films. But um, to me, that was a lot more scary than a, a supernatural monster. Well, I, I feel like I feel like even just looking at the trajectory from Psycho and, and yeah, Texas Chainsaw, where, again, they're clearly inspired by like the real life killers like Ed Gein, for example. But when you get to like Buffalo Bill and Hannibal, now now it's kind of like that that sort of veneer is gone. Now it's like these are literally the true life killers. And you're right, that that is more terrifying. These are not monsters. There's nothing fantastical about this. These are they, we're actually seeing these people in real life. And so that is a, a more direct uh, dose of terror. And I, I'm working on this too. That, that you know, I think you know, horror films are a metaphor for their time. And um, I, I'm working on that. James and I are going to be going through the uh, Spencer Tracy, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where I'm going to argue that uh, Doc, it's, it's Dr. Jekyll takes the drug and turns into a Nazi. Ooh. Ooh. And, <laughs> yeah, and this is this is this is this is 1941. The war is going on, but the U.S. is not in it. Same thing here. The same period of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, you've got this the the, the um, Gulf War uh, with Kuwait and Iraq, and I, I can still remember hearing. I think it was the you know the UN delegate from Iraq uh, speaking at, at an emergency session of the UN with this all going on, and and he just sounded you know crazy and scary, you know. But it was all the stuff we are the heirs of Babylon, you know. We have all all this grandiose sort of stuff, but and I think yeah. This was supposedly the end of the Cold War era when the Berlin Wall came down. And now, just a couple of years later, you've got another wildly authoritarian kind of figure that's also now invaded uh, a, a different another country and troops are being sent in. You know, so I, I think that, you know, that the, the horror film is a barometer 
of uh, where we are and what's going on. Yeah, um, I, and you know, I, I think we talked a little bit about this before starting the podcast, but like, I think that the Silence of the Lambs does have um, some sort of subtle, you know, anti-American, anti-institution themes in the film that were really much, very much of the time, like in, in the 90s, where you, you, it, you know, I, it's hard for me to believe that it was 30 years ago, like, or, <laughs> you know, but like. Yeah, mentioned it's the year I was born, so. I know, yeah. Aged myself well. You know, but like that, that in a way, the 90s were really a period of anxiety um, that I, I, I wasn't aware of living through it in the same way I am kind of looking back and seeing, you know, it's, it's, it, it, now we're talking about the 90s being like the last decade where you had like the monoculture where everybody was kind of watching the same shows and, mm-hmm. you know, listening to the same music. You, you knew you still had like cable TV and, <laughs> um, but it was also the beginning of a lot of what we see now, this kind of constant surveillance of everything. You know, you talk about the Gulf War. It's like we all watched that. Like mm-hmm. CNN had 24 hour coverage of that. Um, and and I think that added a lot to um, our feelings of anxiety, like just, you know, we were more aware of uh, what the U.S. was doing in other countries. And then there was a lot of a lot of backlash against that, like feeling like there was overreach and, um, you yeah, know, it, questioning this, the role of the superpower yeah, and, and the role of the government in our lives. And I think I think that. Um, you know, I th- I wouldn't say those are major themes in this movie, but like you do see, you know, the portrayal of of uh, the um the prison warden is just like so negative, and he seems like a buffoon, and and um Hannibal Lecter like eats him as soon as he can, <laughs> you know, and then and and even at the very end where you have you know Jodie Foster's uh well, Clarice Starling shooting Buffalo Bill and and the last scene of the, of the American flag just sort of falling down, you know? And I think, I think there are these, these, um, uh, you know, I don't know if you call them like tributes to this, I sort of anti-Americanism within the film. And, and I mean, it is about the FBI and, yeah. in the, in the um, late, you had Halloween and in the eighties you had uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street series starts up again. And you know, behind all of this is Jack the Ripper, is the, who defined the idea of a serial killer. Mm. And um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's first really you know major major film is The Lodger, about Jack the Ripper. So I think it's got roots as far back as that. And, and Ed Gain and and so you know, add on to that. But you got Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers. So there's a lot of anxiety in all of that stuff. But I think I, I talk more about you know your how you see um, um, Clarissa uh, Starling you know how they how, how she represents a, you know a heroine or a model for you. Yeah, you know, so I have to say, like I I originally had this idea that I wanted to talk about this film because you know that's like my favorite one of my favorite horror movies, and um, I haven't seen it in a really long time. And then as I was sort of reading up about it. Um, preparing for this podcast, I um, have re-examined it in a lot of ways. So I remember, you know, watching it in my friend's basement, and then there's this 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like this, like white sort of like cisgendered, like teenager and seeing a, you know, female heroine was so inspiring for me. There was that, um, relatability. I mean, Clarice Starling is, um, such a, such a strong character, but she's also so vulnerable. Uh, one thing I read, which was really interesting. I don't know if you know that, um, they originally wanted like Meg Ryan (laughs) to play the character and, or Michelle Pfeiffer. They both turned it down because they thought it was like too dark. Um, and, uh, and apparently Jodie Foster really, really wanted to, to play this role. And, um, I mean, obviously she won an Academy Award and she did an amazing job. And I mean, you know, obviously Anthony Hopkins too, like you can see how the performances really elevated it to, to like the artistic level that was recognized at the Oscars. But, um, so, okay. So like, I'm trying to say that I see it as kind of like a feminist statement, right? Like she's this strong female character in this world of men right there's this great scene where in the beginning of the movie where she gets in the elevator and she's so petite and she's standing in the elevator with all of these huge men and it's a real visual metaphor for the movie right she she has to um convince all of these other you know male authority figures of her perspective of what she thinks is going to solve the case and and um and then she has to stand up to these two terrifying uh serial killers you know so she is this like really amazing hero i mean she's almost like a female you know van helsing or something i thought that you know i was so inspired by that but then you know, as I'm as I'm saying all this and I'm experiencing this, I'm like, yeah, this is one of the reasons I love this movie. But then reading about it and and realizing that, you know, when the book came out and when the film came out, there was a lot of controversy um, about the Buffalo Bill character and and sort of the themes around transgenderedness and how he's portrayed as, you know, um, insane and violent and how negative those stereotypes are for the trans community and the backlash that happened at the time when both the film and the book got so much, so many accolades. But then it's like really interesting to look back at that 30 years later and think like, oh my goodness, like our culture was rife with this transphobia that I, being in the sort of privileged position I was in, I was completely unaware of at the time that I, you know, really resonated with this film. So I just sort of want to like, say that openly that I feel like now I question whether I would say this is like my favorite film or like because that portrayal is so negative and I feel like it's so damaging so it's um, almost way you almost can't like separate it from its its historical period if you will you know Mm -hmm. right exactly I mean like 93 you have the crying game which is also sort of in this like trajectory of problematic like trans films and and you know even you know you look at like another horror film masterpiece like psycho you have the character of norman bates dressing as his mother and it's not even something i really registered with until thinking about this i'm like wow there's so many themes that are so negative um that you know you have to come with a critical lens and and realize like how you know just as you were saying dad like these stereotypes and these anxieties in our culture come through um in the films in their in their time you know 
Yeah, I mean, you have to almost like wonder if if, if the same movie was made today, either would the Buffalo Bill character be drastically different, or maybe it wouldn't get the sort of accolades it get it got then, you know? But it's but it, but also I feel like going back to what you're saying was about you know how kind of like you know sort of recognizing yourself in Clary's character and how that it's so it's both kind of like progressive in that way, but also like has these like flaws as well. But at the same time, it's like it, it creates a sort of like complexity I think to the film itself. Yeah, totally. And and you know um, while. Silence of the Lambs, the 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 book is not based on um like it's not a true story. It's taken uh you know, Thomas Harris when he was writing the book, he spent time with the FBI and um at the time the FBI was uh chasing Ted Bundy and mm. Ted Bundy would um fake injuries to get attention, which is like what the Buffalo Bill character does. I don't know if you remember like he uh he got a broken arm and he's trying to like move a couch into his van, you know? And um, so that was actually taken from, from what Ted Bundy was doing. And then the, the other thing is that uh, Thomas Harris was with the FBI when they had captured Ted Bundy and they were using him as an expert on serial killers and asking him to help them catch this other serial killer in Florida. And he told them, he said, don't remove the body the serial killer will always come back to the scene of the crime. And that's actually how they caught him. So, Whoa. yeah, so there are these, you know, and then, and that, and that brings up this, 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 this topic of kind of like true crime. I mean, I, I think dad, you were saying that psycho was also written and based on, was it Ed Gaines? Ed Gaines, Yeah. Right. Well, and, um, I think that the, the Buffalo Bill character, they say, was inspired by real-life kidnapping and murders of a guy named Gary Hednick, who um, who actually, you know, did kidnap women and keep them in a in pits in his basement. And he actually uh, was was captured and and killed by lethal injection injection in 1999. So this was like kind of happening at the same time he was. There, 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 you know, it brings up there's another this film from back in the mid 60s called The Collector about this psychopathic character who kidnaps women and then, you know, tries to set them up in some kind of, in his mind, idyllic setting. Of course, they're all terrified, but, you know, he's got a clothes for them and, you know, a, a nice room, you know, but this idea, he literally collects women oh. uh, and invariably ends up killing them. I forget who directed it, but it was a powerful film. But it has echoes of the same kind of stuff here. Well, I, I mean, I feel like this kind of, you know, to bring it to sort of present day, where where is the line where you're portraying these like horrible events that are in ba- based on or inspired by real things that happened? And, you know, like here we are 30 years after Silence of the Lambs was made, and like that Dahmer show is the most popular show on Netflix right now. You know, there seems to be um, a real interest in true crime. And like, you know, 30 years after Silence of the Lambs, you have uh, the Dahmer show being like the most popular show on Netflix. And and like, where is that line, that sort of more ethical line about like, should we be portraying these things? Like should, and you know, that seems like it. it's really sensationalized these all like horrendous 
crimes and like is is like is horror going too far like is this is this something that we should well, be saying that's not allowed you know yeah, the, the horror film comes out of the uh, miracle plays of the middle ages you know in western culture where you you you, you learn a moral lesson that these are um uh, cautionary tales you know uh Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. Don't try this at home. Don't, you know, uh, don't. And they're all warnings, you know. Um, Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus, you know. Uh, Dracula is a, a, a mis misconception of eternal life. You know, Jekyll and Hyde is, again, a question about the nature of, of the human, human persona, the human soul. And... Um, well, also, I feel like, you know, going off the way you said about, like, you know, the, the Dahmer show, and I think just true crime in general, I think that it's just extremely popular nowadays with the number of documentaries and shows, movies, et cetera. But I think the more the fascination is, is almost a way of like trying to understand, obviously, mm -hmm. the motives of, of, of these disturbed people. And I think that's where, you know, when you talk about like horror going too far, I think when you go back to like, you know, things that are more fantastical, like monsters, vampires, et cetera. It's so much more clearly defined in terms of motivation and weakness and strength. Whereas, like when you get into these more like psychological territories, it's so much more complex and again, almost like almost like um, unfathomable how we sort of like comprehend a lot of it. And that's why I think that's why I think this movie does so well by having. I was going to say we haven't mentioned Hannibal Lecter yet this whole time, but <laughs> having you know Hannibal Lecter as sort of a, a sort of a, a linchpin of how of how Clarice sort of like is trying to understand Buffalo Bill and just really getting into the mind of a killer. Because I think, I think that's what's so, that's what's so like both like um, intriguing, but also like alarming about even, even the way, even the way they, they, they talk about like, don't let him like into your head. Cause like he will, like there's this frighteningness of like, you're trying to understand how this mind works in order to find this other killer. But at the same time, like you're becoming so much more vulnerable to how, how, he could he could harm you because they they say and it's true like Hannibal Lecter is a mastermind like he's he's yeah. he's not just this like crazy killer like he's this he's this brilliant. genius yeah he's brilliant you know and I mean just as an aside Anthony Hopkins is so incredible in well, that I, role I like the way you talked about Liz how yeah we we meet Clarice and she's clearly yeah, like in this man's world and is trying to like kind of prove herself but I feel like the movie does such a good job of really like preparing not just her but the audience as well for Hannibal Lecter, like really preparing him. And like one moment that always like stays with me when I watch the movie is is I think around the time when Hannibal escapes and you have the SWAT team come in and like you can just see the sweat on their faces because they're so like scared of what they're about to find out, right? Like they they yeah. know this is not just a random kill. Like they they know this is like the big deal. Um, and even like the way the way we first meet Hannibal, the way she walks down the hall, like it, it's such dread because you know it's like this is like yeah you are now facing the heart of darkness kind of thing. Yes, that scene has always terrified me when he's standing there so still, you know, yeah. like and he does just so much for her. His facial expression, like it, yeah. it like makes your skin crawl. Mm -hmm. Um, I I read that they actually considered Sean Connery for the role initially. And um, and he turned it down and and Anthony Hopkins uh, really wanted to do it. But I think it seems like, you know, the people who read the script were concerned about the violent themes in it and, and they weren't sure they wanted to be part of the film. And um, 
you know, no one expected it to win Best Picture. <laughs> we had, you know, the Michael Mann film, Manhunter. And like, so like, this wasn't the first movie to have Hannibal Lecter in on screen. And, and do you remember that the actor that plays Hannibal? Um, uh, I can look it up. But yeah, obviously, uh, obviously, like there had been other actors portraying. And the Red Dragon, too. Uh, right. But but yeah, I mean, once you see Anthony Hopkins, you can't picture anything else. I know, else. I know. There's a fine line between um, what is illuminating and what is yes. exploitative. And I, I told you this story, I can say it here on the podcast. You know, I was doing my re- research on uh, Nazi propaganda. I remember talking to my advisor about it. And uh, I, at that point, I was reading uh, Goebbels' diaries. You know, Joseph Goebbels, who was the head of, of propaganda for, for Nazi Germany. And I can, you know, and, and Goebbels wrote all these, um, and he really defined how effective propaganda is, and his his technique has been used ever since. You know, whether you're trying to sell something on a commercial on TV or whatever. But I can remember my advisor saying, and I told him I was reading these diaries. He said, "Don't read too much at any one time, mm. because you're looking into a mind that is completely evil." And that was. That was very good advice. <laughs> Maintain your boundary, you know. I know, but, but you know, and I, I remember having this conversation with you. Like, I remember you sharing that with me years ago. I think when I was taking a course on the Holocaust um, in university, and I agree that is really good advice. But then, like, I think there's this reaction to that where it's like, okay, well, like, Mein Kampf should be banned. Like, that's a book that no one should be able to read. And and you were like, no, like, we shouldn't be censoring yeah we need we need to learn you know, what is that boundary there like yeah. where you have to have an awareness so that you know it almost an awareness that is educational yeah. but but not um sensational or well c.s lewis had a had a great line he said um a christian needs to know sin the way Sherlock Holmes knew Moriarty. <laughs> that is a great line. Um, I, I just wanted to, you know, um, as we're talking about this film kind of being uh, like having, you know, sort of feminist themes where you've got this great female character, even at the time the film was released, um, Betty Friedan, who, you know, is like, Sure. One of one of the you know most renowned uh, feminist yep. theorists, she said at the time she was appalled that the film won so many Oscars because of the basic content of the film, where women are being eviscerated and murdered and skinned, and she's like, "This is not at all a feminist film in mm. any way because of this content." And I think while it's bait you know you can say oh well these are based on like actual events and these things happened i mean you know this is a result of a of a of a world that is misogynistic and you know a culture that is kind of like are we sensationalizing those things in 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 even depicting this or even i don't know making it some kind of form of entertainment i mean i'm but just it, raising it, that question <laughs> Like when you talk about the, you know, you know, you need to study the Holocaust to keep it from happening again. I mean, you need to unmask the, you know, the demon within. I think that's, you know, um, the essence of 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 the serpent in the book of Genesis 
uh, is that uh, he's deceitful. He's, you know, he's not overtly attacking uh, Adam and Eve, but he's planting doubts and he's, you know, he's using deceit. You will, you know, you will not die. Uh, you will be like God, you know, all these other, uh, this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, it, it has to be, again, you know, it, ha- it has, there's lessons that have to be learned. It's a cautionary tale. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Bible, the whole Old Testament is all about sin and its consequences because we need to learn these lessons. And, and I feel like when you apply that to like real life, I, I think you can see that with how, at least like here, like in America, how we kind of like wrestle with some of like our problematic history. You know, a lot of people don't want to come to terms with a lot of the horrible things in our history. But like if you, if yeah. you, if you try to like sweep it under the rug, that's not the way to solve it. That makes it even worse. Right. Yeah. You know, it's Whoopi Goldberg with her introduction to the Warner Brothers cartoons. And says, you know, the racial stereotypes in, in these cartoons um, are not right now. They weren't right back then. But to remove them, to not show them, is to pretend they didn't happen. And that's to distort history and reality. Need to learn the lesson from it. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, you know, as we as we think about maybe did Silence of the Lambs elevate the horror film at all? Do we feel like 30 years later, you know, because it won the Academy Award, now people can see horror films as art, as more artistic and having this sort of being on the same level as like a drama or a. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I know, I know in more recent times, there is a term thrown around called elevated horror, which applies to like a lot like the A24 movies, the ones that are a little more like artfully made. But there's also, I think, a lot of pushback of that term from like the horror fans because like, what does that mean that other horror is not elevated? Like, it, it does sound a little like condescending. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I know I've heard like in some interviews with, with filmmakers how like, it seems like, you know, there's horror as a genre, which could be anything from, you know, slashers to zombies to monsters, et cetera. But it's like every decade era, if you will, there's always at least one or two like highly acclaimed films, whether it be like by an Alfred Hitchcock or a Stanley Kubrick in The Shining. It's like, where it's like, okay, these are just well-made films by high prestige filmmakers. And like, I think Jonathan Demme is certainly in that category too. So it's like, I think that yes, there are plenty of horror films that are more kind of quote unquote for horror fans. And I think something like this more applies, appeals to anyone, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think there are movies like that today. Like I think Get Out is a movie that kind of mm-hmm. appeal to anyone. Like movies that are, are very like socially aware, I think yeah. kind of cross that boundary. Yeah. And like then on that same theme, like, would you think, would you say that like, you know, Clarice Starling being this amazing female heroine helped change the way women are seen in horror films? Because like for decades, they were just like the victims or like the sexualized characters. And then you have like, you know, some women who stand out. I mean, we talked a little bit about Marion in Psycho. Um, who we wouldn't really say is like a heroine at all. Um, she's kind of a complicated character. But then, Dad, you made like a great point about Vera, her sister, being like the strong character in that movie. And yeah. perhaps being like, as I loved what you said, like she's kind of like a transitional character for women, you know, becoming stronger characters in films. I, I do think that, I think Clarice, though, and I think also... Um... 
Oh my gosh, from Psycho, uh, um, the sister. I'm blanking yeah, on right. Vera. 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 Yeah. Um, I, I do think they have a little more agency, and I think mm-hmm. that that really comes across versus like the victims where it's kind of things happening. I mean, yeah, I think I think there are plenty of of great female protagonists. So, I mean, I, I've mentioned like Sigourney Weaver and Alien. I mean, Nev Campbell and Scream. But again, they are more in that kind of victim final girl sort of role. Whereas I think Clarice definitely has a lot more agency, and she's really She's going after the the evil. Yeah. And I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I think, so obviously I didn't see this movie when it first came out. Um, I was much older. Um, but I, I think the movie, I, and you know, I know, I know we're talking about some of the maybe parts of the film that haven't aged super well, but I think as just like a pure like horror experience, I think the movie holds up very well. I mean, there, I, the whole scene where, where Hannibal escapes, where he like uh, fakes being the dead cop, like, when he gets up in the ambulance, like, that still makes me, like, my skin crawl. And then, of course, like, the ending, the whole, like, I'm about to have an old friend for dinner. Yeah, right. <laughs> and just seeing, just, the way you just see him kind of drifting off into the, into the crowd, like, that's, that's so, so unnerving. Yeah, so, I, we haven't really talked about the fact that there are, you know, there's a sequel and a prequel. I don't know, Dad, if you want to say anything about Hannibal. I, I think that Julianne uh, Moore, to me, was a stronger character than, than uh, Jodie Foster's Clarice. I mean, that had to be that way. But uh, it even seems like we're, you know, early on where she's um, sitting in a chair with her legs up on the desk, you know, something that men would often be doing. You don't see women doing that, you know. Uh, this idea, she, she really was um, uh, a more, for, I, for me, I think, as I, I'm thinking back on the film years ago, but I like the idea that she was kind of really a forceful character. I think more so than, than you know, than, I think we're seeing an evolution, you know, going on here. That's really interesting. And and I I remember, actually, at the time when we saw that film, we, did we see that together? I don't remember. We, but, may, we maybe well did, yeah. Um, that, you know, she really had a sense of... Um, like a clear sense of good versus evil, which made her, it really made her very strong um, and, and, and seemed to make her less scared. Like I, one of the things I like about Jodie Foster's portrayal is that she is so scared. Like that's so relatable, you know, she just seems terrified and, (laughs) and yet she still takes those steps forward, you know, and, um, and, Whereas I yeah I don't remember uh, Julianne Moore's character um, having that same kind of trepidation. No, I agree. I think she's uh, she's like you know kind of like uh, 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 what's her name on uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Um, Olivia. Uh, yeah, Olivia. Uh, well, I that kind of kind of a female character. Well, I, I haven't seen Hannibal, but it, from what you guys were saying, it, it sounds like in this she's more experienced. Whereas, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Whereas she's kind of more of a newcomer in Sons of the Lands. Yeah. Right. That's- James, I know you're kind of the expert on like horror films today. Like, are there any strong female leads in in recent films that you would see as comparing to this character? So a couple I mentioned to you. Um, I mean, a, a movie I really like is Ready or Not the the one with Samara Weaving. But even in that, again, I think she's still a little bit more of like in the victim role. Um I really like Midsummer with Florence Pugh. But again, like I think you're still in you're still in those kind of like victim sort of um 
um, positions. So off the top of my head, I don't know if there's anyone that's as kind of like quote unquote take charge as someone like Clarice. Um, but at the same time, I think I think from what we're seeing with a lot of movies now, we are seeing a lot more representation in that way. We're seeing more kind of complex female characters, more female driven stories. I think that really is coming across. And yeah, I mean, I think I think we are in a good time for horror. Um, okay, well, we, we've been going pretty long. Do you have any kind of like final thoughts as we're sort of wrapping this up, Liz? When you think about like your list of your favorite films, and often they're films that maybe you saw like an influential period in your life and haven't really gone back to like re-examine that. I think, like, I would say, in conclusion, I'm not so sure I would say The Silence of the Lambs is my favorite horror film anymore. I think it's a great film. I think there's a lot of problematic um, representation in it. And yet there's also some really positive representation. So so I guess it's, it's more nuanced um, now that I had this opportunity to kind of talk about it with you guys and, and reexamine it. Um, what do you yeah. think is your favorite horror film at this point? <laughs> I don't know, Dad. I might have <laughs> to like go back farther and just say like Nosferatu. Yeah, right. Well, sure. <laughs> well, we but, want to do a show on that. It's the 100th anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you say that because I, I, I've always for the longest time said that Psycho is my favorite horror film. But I, I feel like as we as we sort of mentioned earlier, like that sort of has some of the same like trappings as this where where you know yeah certain parts of it not really they haven't aged super well so so it's kind of um you know it, it does put it puts you in a, in a weird sort of place like i recognize the things that aren't super haven't aged super well but at the same time like i love the other elements so i i understand what you're saying yeah um dad well, those are thoughts no i i think it's uh that that this whole idea of the um you know the the predator is is scary and fascinating at the same time, and uh, I, I think it's it, you know it it does go back to Jack the Ripper, which is which is the first figure that that identified a serial killer, uh, and that's well over you know a hundred years ago now, hundred twenty thirty eighteen eighties. It's interesting, you know, at that time, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde had opened on the uh, the London stage, and they canceled the performances while the murders was, were going on, and saying that there are too many horrors in the world today to, to add any more onto it. But I find that very interesting that you know, one of the, the most classic and significant horror stories of all, all time in English literature, Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde, was canceled because of the real life Jack the Ripper killings. That is really interesting. And I mean, that really touches on the same questions we're having today around the like. Dahmer show it's like should we be I don't mm -hmm. know personally I think I would I would say I don't think I don't think that's right I don't think we should we should allow for this kind of depiction that's sensationalizing real traumas but that's just my opinion um and you know it's just interesting that that was you know long before any of this technology existed that core issue was still there mm -hmm. should they put a play on that depicts these horrors when there's real horrors like that happening in that city, you know? Yeah. Well, and what's interesting too is like, whether or not it's it's right or wrong, it's like there's clearly an audience for this. I mean, we look at everything from like, yeah. I mean, look at like Law and Order we talked about before, like how popular that show became and like 
then yeah, up, up, up till now where it's like so much true crime stuff. So like clearly people have this like fascination with true crime. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I in, in closing, I do think this is a great, not just a great horror film, a great film. I think it's it's just it's really suspenseful. It's it is dark, but it, uh, at the same time, like you said, like uh, Clarice is a very strong heroine, and um, I think the movie. Yeah, I, I I've seen it probably maybe like three or four times, start to finish. But like I feel like I get so much on it every watch. So it really it is a, a really kind of monumental film. Yeah. Um, a great discussion liz great having you on the podcast this, yep. i'm sure this will not be the last time all so, right thanks so much for having me great to see you guys all right again i'm james i'm paul and i'm liz and <laughs> this is 10 times a terror we'll see you guys next time thank you for listening to it's 10 times the terror the podcast one of my favorite films ever <laughs> <laughs> let's do that for again thank you for listening to 10 times the terror this podcast would not be possible without listeners like you. You can find out more about our podcast by visiting our website, 10timestheterror.com. That's 10xtheterror.com.